You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Good morning. Welcome back to the worship of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here at Resurrection. I hope all of you enjoyed the retreat last week, and those of you who went, I mean, I missed you a show of hands real quick. How many of you were actually there? I was not able to go, unfortunately. I'm sure, I, I know that I missed out. I've heard stories already that I, I know that I missed out. But uh, I'm, I'm grateful to be back here with you this morning. We're continuing our series this morning on peace and quiet, studying uh, first the, the epistles of First and Second Timothy. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy, his, his uh, young um, Disciple that he has that he has uh, been been mentoring and, and discipling. Uh, Paul has been pressing the young Timothy to live a life that is so steeped in the story of the gospel and in its power and its beauty that he is able to proclaim it and live it even where it contradicts the prevailing narrative of his culture. So we're looking at these letters to Timothy uh, in this series in order that we too might be able to live into the gospel, to live into its power and beauty, so that right here in South Austin, we can live in a way that is consistent with it. We can live it, we can proclaim it, we can enact it. That's what we're, that's what we're doing here in this series. And so in this series, we've been coming back. We've hit it over and over and over again, and I'm just going to make it explicit today. It's a painful point for us, and maybe you've already noticed it, and maybe it's been a disquieting thing for you. But I'm going to make it explicit this week. I'm going to bring it to the surface, and I'm going to highlight it and talk about it. It is this point right here. It is not the normal state of affairs for Christians to be in the majority. It is not the normal state of affairs for Christians to be able to control the moral agenda for a nation. That's not normal. It's not normative Christianity. If we're professing that normative Christianity is the Christianity of the Bible, that's not normative. Nowhere in the scriptures are we taught to imagine that that's going to be the scenario that prevails. Actually, to be a Christian is to be against the grain, swimming upstream, out of step with the world, because we have a different story than the story that the world tells about itself. Our story is different, and therefore our convictions are different. Our kingdom that we profess that we proclaim, that we enact. It's a different kingdom than the one America or the world imagines for itself. It's a different sort of strength that we draw from than the strength that our nation, that our world draws from. And so therefore, what we profess and what we live is bound to look strange. It's bound to look out of sync. It's bound to look deranged (laughs) to the world. Think about that for a second. Because as soon as you allow this thought to enter your mind, you suddenly begin to find it everywhere in Scripture. Just look around. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, Jesus says this to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Think about that for a second. That's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is talking here. The light of the world in flesh, walking around on the earth, looks at his disciples and says, hey, if the world hates you, it hated me first. There's a language that permeates the totality of the New Testament, and not simply the New Testament, but if we reach back to the prophets, 
If we reach back anywhere in the law, the prophets, the writings of the Old Testament, it's there too. This is the language. It's the language of exile. The people of God are always in exile. Even when they're at home, they're homesick at home. We are people who are in exile. The entire letter of 1 Peter is addressed to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, people in exile, living in their own homes, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Wherever Christians are, we're not quite at home. Later in the letter, in in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you, as people who are sojourners, people who are exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your very souls. Here's what he's saying when he says that. He's saying what people think is normal and acceptable and the right thing, what is moral, what is appropriate, don't give yourself to those things. Give yourself instead to the story that has shaped you and given life to you. Because if you don't, the passions that wage war against your soul will take you down. That's what Peter says. This theme of being exiles, of being sojourners and aliens in the land, it reaches back, as I've already said, to the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament. Especially, I urge you, go read Daniel. Go read Esther. The whole Bible, really, is counsel about how to flourish as exiles, how to flourish as people who don't quite belong. Even when Israel is settled in the land of Cana, what does it say for them to do? It says, hey, pay special attention to the sojourners and the aliens in the land. Those people are the very presence of God to you, so take care of them. Because, why? You were also once exiles. Pay attention to this. We're going to come back to this again. Don't lose sight of this even when you're at home. Be strangers and exiles even when you are at home. If you want to know the Bible's normative perspective on how to engage culture, it's actually not what we as American Christians have come to think. It's not to figure out how to dominate everything by cutthroat displays of power. It is certainly not, as one political figure said this week, to put your Christian principles on hold to get the job done. If we do that, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, if we do that, we have already lost. We have already lost if we put our Christian principles on hold. Whenever we engage the world, we we do so as people who are steeped in the narrative and practices of the gospel. And if we do that, if we are actually people who are steeped in the narrative and practices of the gospel, we are, generally speaking, normatively not going to be people who are the night watchmen and the disciplinarians of our culture. That is not our role. That's not the role that Christ has given to us as the church. Rather, what we are supposed to be are people who have become so steeped in the gospel that we are becoming the place where shipwrecked lives are rescued, where people are healed of deep and lifelong and generational wounds, where people's hopes are restored, they're given fresh eyes to see. We're becoming people who long for a homeland that we have seen and we've participated in and we've experienced, but that is not yet fully here. I've used this, I've used this expression of being, of being homesick at home. That's an expression of G.K. Chesterton's. When he encounters the fullness of the power of the gospel, that's what he said. I suddenly realized why it was that I was always homesick at home. It's because he was in exile. 
It's because that's what Christians are. When you find yourself immersed in the power of the gospel, you look around at the ambient culture around you and you suddenly think to yourself, my God, I'm in exile. I'm a stranger. I thought I was at home, but I'm not. You suddenly learn to distinguish the American we from the Christian we. You don't lose sight of the fact of that American we. And in fact, you cherish the places where your convictions encounter the convictions of our culture, and we can affirm those convictions of our culture. That's a beautiful thing when that happens. But the expectation should not be that there's a map, you know, a complete mapping of our convictions on the convictions of the world. So you will also learn to say, I've seen a glimpse of my homeland, and it's coming, but it's not fully here yet. There is an entire world that remains unconverted, whose horizon of what is realistic, of what is plausible, of what can be expected, is so deeply impoverished that it crushes me to see them living that way. And so I have to do the work of of an evangelist. I have to tell people, there is a hope, there is a kingdom, there is an expectation of the Holy Spirit to work and to create sights of this coming kingdom that's rushing into the world. We have to proclaim that message. I love, there's a a pastor in Portland named Luis Palau, and he says, actually, you cannot simply proclaim the gospel in works and in deeds. You have to use words. There comes a moment where it becomes necessary to proclaim the gospel in words to tell people about Jesus, because how else will they know unless the message becomes clear? We have to tell the story of the gospel because we have seen it because it's been enacted in our midst, because we've proclaimed it to each other, because we've rehearsed the story, because it's our story, because it is beautiful, and because it is true, and because it is the hope of the world. The early church was set on fire by this. The early letters we have outside the New Testament were written by men like Polycarp and Ignatius of Antioch, both of whom became martyrs for the sake of the gospel. And their message was strident, constantly. Remember that you were exiles. Whenever they write letters to these churches, They're written to the church that sojourns in this place, the church that sojourns in Smyrna, the church that sojourns in Ephesus, and so on. What they're saying is, remember that you have a homeland, that it's beautiful, that it's more real and more true than what you see around you. You always have to be rehearsing the story of the gospel so that you can see, you can have fresh eyes to see that you have a homeland and you're not there yet. You have not arrived. You are in exile. The way you do this is by rehearsing that story all the time. That's what Paul is telling us in verse 16 of chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. He says, all scripture is inspired by God. For what purpose? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, for the formation of the people of God to see that they have a homeland and it's not here yet. We participate in it, but it has not arrived in its fullness. So that we need correction, we need reproof when we're not giving ourselves to that story, when we are allowing ourselves to be dominated, to be, to be brought into the cycle of fear and reprisal that the world says is normative. This is what's normal. This is what's realistic. This is what's to be expected. No, the gospel is a different story. When we do that, when we give ourselves to the story, the word of God is creative. Like God himself, it creates things out of nothing. It generates the kingdom in our midst when it is proclaimed and rehearsed and memorized and contemplated. It changes lives. It creates and engenders repentance in people. 
It engenders holiness and righteousness in our midst when we read it and when we preach it and teach it and proclaim it. It creates reconciliation where there is brokenness, where there are fractured relationships. God puts them back together by the power of this story. I mean, Paul says earlier in this, in this epistle, we didn't read this, but we should have. <laughs> in chapter two, he says, hey, Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. He says, Timothy, I'm suffering for that gospel, that message about the fulfillment of the vocation and the hope of Israel in Jesus Christ. And in his defeating of the power of death by his resurrection, he says, I'm bound like a common criminal because I've been preaching that. But guess what? The word of God is not bound. The word of God is creative. The word of God goes forth from our lips when we speak it, when we proclaim it. It implants itself in people's hearts. It stirs up new life. It brings new hope. It cuts through the lies and the compromises and the false divisions that we've created between ourselves. And it leads to repentance and to amendment of life. Oh, we should have an audacious trust in the creative power of the word of God because the Bible tells us to. The Bible says when we speak the words of the gospel, when we are bold in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to people, new life springs up. Unexpected life springs up. These are words that have power that other words do not have. I love the way that N.T. Wright sums up Paul's ministry because Paul's ministry is audacious. Am I right? Paul's ministry is audacious. This is what N.T. Wright says. This is a bit of a longer quote, so be patient with me. He says, I have often reflected on the strangeness of the task to which Paul devoted his life. You know what Paul did with his life? He went and told pagans that there was a single creator God rather than a multiplicity of gods. But not only that, here's what Paul said. That God became incarnate in a Jew in a sort of out-of-the-way backwater in the Roman Empire, and then he was crucified on a cross as a political criminal, and then God raised him from the dead, and he defeated death by raising him from the dead. How about that? <laughs> and then he says, this message was bound to cause hoots of derision, and if access to be believed, it did, right? Of course it did. Of course it does. It's foolishness. It's foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Gentiles, as Paul himself says. And yet Paul found that when he told this story, when he proclaimed it, that Jesus was indeed the world's true Lord. People, to their great surprise, no doubt, found this announcement making itself at home in their minds and hearts, generating the belief that it was true, excuse me, and transforming their lives with a strange new presence and power. To our surprise, God uses our limping words and he creates life where there has only been death. The word of God is not bound, y'all. He tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 5, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and carry out your ministry fully. Do the work of an evangelist. Let's camp out there for a minute. What does that mean? It means that we have to proclaim and enact this story. We have to rehearse it. We have to patiently Unpack it for people in the face of objections, in the face of refusals, in the face of denial. We have to continually rehearse it. We have to rehearse it among ourselves. We have to rehearse it with others, patiently, slowly, gently, because it's true and because it's beautiful and because it actually does things. It creates things in the world. When we do that, when we use our limping and inadequate words, 
when we are faithful with them, God uses them to change the lives of those around us. It's appropriate that our Old Testament lesson today was Genesis 32, where Jacob struggles with this man who's more than a man. You know, the early church interpreted this man as an angel. Jacob won't let go. He, he's, he's struggling with this man. I mean, can you imagine you're going to sleep at night in the wilderness and somebody attacks you? It was like, my worst nightmare. <laughs> like, but, uh, but Jacob realizes somewhere along the way that this is not simply an attacker or an assailant that he's wrestling with, right? He's wrestling with God himself. And when the angel sees Jacob's tenacity, Jacob won't let go until God blesses him through this encounter. The man or the angel touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it. And so Jacob always walks with a limp. It's such an odd story. Karl Barth uh, interprets this story as a parable for we who are Christians. He says, God dislocates the hips of his saints so they walk with a limp. I love that because it's true, isn't it? We are not a people with tremendous resources or an abundance of talents or an abundance of riches. We're just not. And we never have been as Christians. We have always been underdogs. We have always been people that everyone has written off. Because why would you pay attention to this little out-of-the-way sect that's just weird and doesn't abide by the convictions of the culture that they, that they inhabit? The church is a scrappy people who rehearses its story. People who endure. We endure suffering. We hang on. Why do we do that? Because we know the secret. We carry the fire. We've seen it. We've participated in it. And so Paul tells us, persist, be patient, do the work of an evangelist in season and out of season. Don't stop doing that. Don't stop rehearsing the story here. Don't stop rehearsing the story in table groups. Don't stop rehearsing the story with your friends that don't know Jesus. Because the work of God through the word is creative. It's powerful. It's slow. But it is powerful. Persist. Be patient. Endure suffering. This is the chief counsel of the New Testament. It is not your talent and your prowess that brings the kingdom. It is above all the slow work of God, working through the very limping human means that God is using in your life to carry out the gospel, to enact it, to proclaim it. I love this quote from Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. He says, above all, trust in the slow work of God. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. He is slow, sometimes glacial <laughs> and coming, but he comes when his people are faithful and they endure. I mean, just think about the Grand Canyon for a second, right? <laughs> this is an, an awe-inspiring sight, and it was created over the course of millennia by a glacier, slowly moving through and cutting through the rock. That is how the Word of God works. It takes generations, but it heals, and it perfects, and it brings into existence the kingdom. Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 4, proclaim the message, be persistent, whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with utmost patience and teaching. Listen to that. Be persistent. Use utmost patience and teaching. Preach it whether the time is favorable or not. Whether in your mind the time is right to proclaim this word or not, proclaim it. Whether the time is right to rehearse this story, whether it looks like the conditions are right, proclaim it. Rehearse it. There is nothing more powerful 
than the slow work of God and the proclamation and rehearsal of the story. Hansers von Balthasar, one of my favorite theologians, says that this virtue of patience that Paul is commending to Timothy right here, of endurance, it's the most important virtue in the entire New Testament, even more important than humility. He says, it is the power to wait, to persevere, to hold out, to endure to the end, not to transcend one's own limitations, not to force issues by playing the hero or the titan, but to practice the virtue that lies beyond heroism, the meekness of the lamb which is led. We follow a hero that gave himself to suffering and to death, and that's the life that we're called into. We are called into patient endurance. We're called into lives of quiet. We're called into lives of faithful proclamation, invisibly, among a small group of people. That's the life that the New Testament envisions for discipleship. That's the life that the New Testament, the New Testament says that by the power of the God, that the power of God overcomes the world. One word of truth overcomes the world, said Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So persistence and patience in rehearsing the gospel is not only how the word goes forth and creates new things in the world, but it's also how we are formed into the people of God, a people who are in exile and yet who remain a people of hope, a people who expect God to break into our midst and make a difference in our worlds. Jonathan Sachs said that the goal of, of, of proclamation of the word is that we would become a creative minority. I love that expression because I think it expresses the vision of the New Testament. It's a people who are in exile, people who are a minority, people who are not capable of dominating, of setting the agenda, and yet who are people of hope, who exercise outsized influence because we are people of hope, people who have a vision. Psalm 119.54 says this, I made your statutes into songs to sing in my exile. We rehearse the word week after week by singing it. We just sang Psalm 121. Did you notice that? Our reading was Psalm 121, and then Nathan had us sing Psalm 121. We rehearse this gospel. We rehearse this gospel so that we can be faithful in the condition of exile. And we worship. We rehearse this gospel in our worship together week after week. Robert Weber says, worship does the story of God. It enacts it in our midst. Nowhere is this clearer than when we receive the Eucharist together. I told you already about how Ignatius and Polycarp and the other apostolic fathers said we needed to constantly rehearse the story so that our sight could be restored. Our, our vision of, the, of our homeland, the place where we belong, could be restored. And so we could also see that we haven't arrived yet, that what is normative here is not what will be normative there. Ignatius also says we do this by breaking one and the same bread. Do you hear that? breaking one and the same bread, the Eucharist, which is, he says, the medicine of immortality. The story of God re read and sung and preached and memorized and rehearsed in families and friendships and table groups, and above all, received and enacted in the Eucharist, where we receive the medicine of Christ's own body and blood. That's how the church becomes a creative minority, able not only to endure everything that comes along, but to thrive in a hopeless culture of death. That is what the church does. That is what the church has always done. We have rehearsed the word. We have preached the word. We have meditated on the word. And we have received the word himself, Jesus Christ, in the Eucharist. 
To be in exile, y'all, it means we don't get to dominate cultural conversations. It's possible, in fact, that no one will pay attention to a single word we say. And if they do so, it will only be to mock or revile us unless we compromise our story. And yet if we are to believe the scriptures, it is possible to be in that position, to be in a position of marginality, and yet full of hope and creativity, and to live beautiful and bold and powerful and influential lives. Again, the rabbi Jonathan Sachs, he says that the prophet Jeremiah was the first person to cast a vision for this. In chapter 29, when Jeremiah says, hey, when you go into exile, which is going to happen to you, when you go into exile, don't decrease in number and diminish in exile. Don't become a lesser people. Become a greater people. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and marry and have sons and daughters and increase in number. Rehearse your story and have hope. And he's saying, according to Jonathan Sachs, that it is possible to survive in exile with your identity intact, with your convictions intact, with your appetite for life undiminished while contributing to the wider society and praying for its well-being, praying to God on its behalf, praying that the kingdom would come in concrete and powerful ways. Jeremiah, he says, was introducing into history a highly consequential idea, the idea of a creative minority. And for the whole history of our life as Christians, the whole history of the history of the church, that's what normative Christianity has been according to the New Testament. We live and we participate in the world's institutions and routines, and yet we do not place our hope in those institutions, in those routines, in those narratives. Because we are governed by Jesus Christ. He is our king. His kingdom is our kingdom. Our basic intuitions and our behavior in the world, because of that, is going to be foreign. It's going to produce a lot of cognitive dissonance for us to live faithfully to this narrative and to these practices. It is difficult, but it's productive. It is creative. God says, when you are faithful to this, my work goes forward in the world. I work through you. My Holy Spirit takes root in people's lives and in the lives of institutions. It happens. Now, the word of God is not bound. Every word of it is God-breathed and useful for instruction, for reproof, for formation. It is more powerful than presidential elections. It is more powerful than nation-states. It is more powerful than the might of militaries. It is more powerful than markets. We participate in all of these things, and yet they do not bind us. What we are bound to is the word of God. It is creative. It has the power to renew you from head to toe. It has the power to bring life. And that's why this collect is in our BCP. In a couple weeks, we're going to pray it. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them. Rehearse the story, proclaim the story, enact the story in the Eucharist week after week. Receive Christ and become a creative minority who can bring hope to the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.